Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Susan Brewer on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Why America Fights, Patriotism and War Propaganda from the Philippines to Iraq. A number of years ago, the Bush administration here in the United States attempted to convince Americans that going to war in Iraq would be a good thing. They mustered all their arguments, and these arguments were met with a good deal of skepticism. In light of what transpired, it seems that that skepticism was not unwarranted. Well, the Bush administration's experience was hardly unique. Susan does a nice job of pointing out that over the past hundred years, various American administrations have attempted to convince the people of the United States that going to war might be a good thing. Sometimes they succeeded and sometimes they failed. It turns out, as Tocqueville might have said, that it's actually quite difficult to get a democratic people to go to war, at least with the truth. I enjoyed talking to Susan today, and I think that you'll probably enjoy the interview. In fact, I'm sure you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Susan. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, I should tell our listeners that we are privileged to have Susan Brewer on the show, and we will be discussing her fascinating new book, fascinating and challenging, I would say, in several ways, new book, Why America Fights, Patriotism and War Propaganda from the Philippines to Iraq. Um, as, as everyone who listens to this show knows, I read the books before I talk to the authors, and uh, I read this one with with great interest and, and pleasure, and I have to say it it caused me to to wonder about uh, what I believed a couple of times, and, and we'll come to that in, in in a second, which is what a good history book should should do. But first, Susan, why don't you uh, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, and let's see, I grew up in upstate New York, in Oneida, New York, which is a small town right in the middle of the state. And a historically significant town. Yeah. <laughs> you mean because of our utopian commune past? <laughs> yeah, well, we have one of those in Iowa, too. I don't know if you know about this, but right now, actually just last week, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I... My family and I uh, went to the Amana colonies, which is mm-hmm. our, our version of Oneida. Not, 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 not sure the Amana colonies are as well known, but anyway, go, go on. Not, maybe not as controversial. No, maybe no, no. They actually, <laughs> we were there, and they're pretty boring. Actually, they didn't. You know, the, the sexiest thing they did was eat together. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> well. Yeah. Uh, well, when I was growing up, there was quite a mystery about the Oneida community. We really weren't, as children, supposed to know or talk about it very much. But as a historian, I've, you know, I've since then learned a, a great deal about it and talked to some of the people who grew up there and things. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. anyway, yes, uh, part of the burned-over district of upstate New York, filled with. Um, 
abolitionists and the temperance movement and utopian communes. That's where I come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but a beautiful place. I don't know if people have it's, – it's gorgeous up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I think it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so did you, uh, you, you, you went to college to study history or how did you come upon history? Well, yes, I, um, well, I, you know, I, I, um, went to college to study American history and American literature, but I really didn't ever plan to become a historian. I went to Washington DC, like a lot of young people after college and worked on Capitol Hill for a while and decided that, um, I needed to study a lot more about you know, the United States and its history. So, um, but not in the United States. I decided I would go to the London School of Economics for my master's degree and, mm-hmm. and get a different perspective, an international perspective on the United States. Because already I was really interested in how Americans see themselves in the world. Uh, while I was in Washington, this was the first years of the Reagan administration. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was down at Lafayette uh, Park across from the White House when the hostages came back from Iran and they visited uh, Congress and then they came in a bus down to the White House. And people poured out of those offices around the White House and they were filling the park and there were young men wearing ties climbing trees. Mm -hmm and waving at the bus and yelling, we're number one, we're number one. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I just remember feeling um, very curious about, you know, this whole outpouring, this really emotional response to the hostages coming home. And and I really thought that I needed to, I was fascinated with how Americans saw themselves in the world. And if I went overseas to study, I might get a different perspective on that. Mm -hmm. So um, I, then after being at the LSE, I came back and ended up becoming a graduate student at Cornell and and becoming a historian. (laughs) Back to upstate New York. (laughs) Back in upstate New York, absolutely, Uh yes. Yeah, Uh Mm -hmm. and who did you work with there? Uh, Walter Lefebvre. So I I focused on U.S. foreign relations, Mm -hmm. and I was always very interested in the cultural aspects of U.S. foreign relations. Again, how ordinary Americans understand foreign relations and and see the role of the United States in the world. Mm -hmm. So that that kind of question has always informed what I've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I interviewed a fellow named Joel Lewis uh, who, wrote, who wrote – was it Joel Lewis? No, it wasn't Joel Lewis. It was – gosh, you know, my memory is slipping. Uh, but anyway, it was a book about uh, American um, – the special relationship, so-called special relationship between America and Britain. And one of the things the author uh, – I think it was Robert Hendershot. That's his name. One of the things the author pointed out was um, that Americans believed that there was a special – no, this is the way he put it. The American foreign policy elite believed Americans believed that there was a special relationship. Americans may not have believed that at all. This is what they believed, <laughs> so they acted accordingly. And it was, I, I just thought it was sort of fascinating because you mentioned the cultural angle. And it was this sort of mm-hmm. this house of mirrors where everybody's trying to guess what everybody else believes. But in any event, how did um, – this is your – is this your second book then, I think? That's right, yeah. right. And actually my first book is was on um, – British propaganda in the U.S. during World War II. Mm-hmm. It's called To Win the Peace. And, uh, you know, I think it was certainly inspired by my time at, 
in, in London and looking at this transfer of power from the British Empire to the United States that happens during World War II and how the British know they need the support of the United States once the war is over and, and really looking at their effort to try to win the hearts and minds of the American mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. during the war to pave the way for a special relationship once once the war is over. Mm-hmm. So, they were, so trying, they were trying to build within the American polity that, that notion of a special relationship right. that, that was in fact absent. <laughs> well, and the opposite was, you know, Americans were very distrustful of the British, uh, you know, leading up to World War II. Yeah, yeah. So they're, and they're very distrustful during the war about fighting to save the British Empire. Right, yeah. You know, that's not what Americans want to be fighting for during yeah. the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. But of but, course, the British government would like to hang on to the British Empire, sure. but they'll need American help to do that. Yeah. So they have to um, pitch it. Yeah, in a so way. That, that's one of the things that we'll talk about. At least I hope we'll get a chance to talk about is the ambivalent American relationship uh, toward empire itself. We we don't we seem kind of uncomfortable with it sometimes. We have one sometimes we don't. We don't quite know what to do with them. But in any event, that's a sort of touchstone of the book, and I hope we get to talk about it. How, how did you come to write this particular book? That is why. Well, I, fights. Yeah, I worked working on that first one, and I. Um, I think I, I got the idea following the um, 1991 Persian Gulf War because I noticed that there were a lot of um, sort of traditional propaganda themes used during that war to sell it, you know, to say that Saddam Hussein is another Hitler, um, this very compelling story about Iraqi soldiers pulling the plugs on incubators holding babies in Kuwait, mm-hmm. you know, um, really reminded me of the sort of World War One theme of, um, you know, the Germans bayoneting babies as they came through Belgium, you know, that same, it's very, it's a sort of visceral uh, message. And I also thought that, that the, the George H.W. Uh, Bush administration was obviously overselling this war in a way. And I kind of wondered why, why is, you know, why is a war to liberate Kuwait being sold with Saddam Hussein as another Hitler? Because that would suggest, of course, that you need to remove Saddam Hussein from power Mm -hmm. if he is another Hitler. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't, that wasn't the war aim of the war. The war was to, the war aim was to liberate Kuwait. Mm So I thought, well, it might be interesting. <laughs> These innocent thoughts, yeah. you know, it might be interesting to look at um, um, the ways the U.S. government has uh, sold war to the American people, mm-hmm. you know, over the past century and to see what sort of patterns emerge, you know, mm-hmm. what, um, of course, each war is very different, but, you know, I was looking to see what. So what sort of consistent messages are there about why America fights, why America goes to war? So that's where I got the idea for the book. And, of course, actually doing it took a very long time. Mm-hmm. And what sort of sources did you use um, other than the obvious one, that being the propaganda itself? Were you able to get back into the machinery that made the propaganda? Well, that, that was really my, my goal was to tie together the foreign policy to the propaganda, you know, that – that would be out there, and to really look at how um, wartime administrations 
translated what is, after all, very complicated foreign policy that's that's done during war, and also very uncertain policy because nobody really knows what's going to happen mm-hmm. during during mm-hmm. war. But how they um, translate what's very complicated into simple slogans mm-hmm. for that can be put on posters or you know transmitted through movies or speeches or you know the kinds of things that that can reach the public over and over again. So I looked at. Um, the papers of uh, presidential administrations, presidents and their chief aides who would be working on this project, the State Department, uh, the Defense Department to some extent. Also, during World War One and World War Two, there were there were propaganda agencies created, and I looked through their papers, really looking at how they are translating why America fights, what. America's fighting for to the public because wartime propaganda also includes messages about, you know, conserving resources or enlisting. I mean, those are all so propaganda messages. But I was really interested in the why we're fighting messages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then me- to look at then to look at how those get translated into movies, magazine stories, radio shows, photographs, T-shirts, newsreels, all the kinds of things that mm-hmm. reach people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, let me ask you to kind of set the frame before we launch into a discussion of the book. What exactly, uh, in your conception, is propaganda? Yes, well, that is not an easy question, really. I mean, it's a very good one. Um, but what I, uh, the definition I use is propaganda is the deliberate manipulation of facts, lies, and ideas. So it can be, um, I think most Americans tend to associate propaganda with lies. But the American style of propaganda is to, first of all, call it information. Mm -hmm. But looking at it over time is to see that it's it's information, so it's selected facts, typically. Uh, Some misinformation, uh, usually a lot of exaggeration, oversimplification, and a lot of of, um, ideas or beliefs are wrapped into propaganda. So mm-hmm. it's actually uh, a quite complex, um, it, even though it looks like a simple slogan or a simple picture, there's quite a, a complex amount of message in it. Mm-hmm. So that's how I uh, define propaganda. Yeah, I'm reminded of a book that I was required to read as an undergraduate. Its title was Writing with a Purpose. And it seems to me that that, that is a... That is what you're talking about here. How is a propaganda different than spin? Well, propaganda, I mean, spin is certainly a close cousin of propaganda, um, but propaganda is going to come with, I think, a, a bigger package in terms of, um, well, in the book I, I refer to these official narratives that administrations create to explain why they're going to war. And spin will be a part of that, but they are, they are these big, dramatic stories, usually talking about how the United States represents um, civilization, democracy, progress, freedom against barbarism, communism, terrorism. Mm-hmm. And within that whole narrative, that whole official narrative, administrations will 
deliver the sort of day-to-day spin that conforms to that uh, overarching framework that mm-hmm. they use to to present the war. Mm-hmm. I see. I, I remember watching um, one of the most entertaining people, I think, ever to serve in any presidential administration. I, I can't really exactly say I miss him, but I'm thinking about Ari Fleischer, who mm-hmm. uh, really was a master of this sort of thing. Um, he, he would get up and say things that were pretty much demonstrably untrue, as if that they were uh, they they had come down from the mount. You know, it was really quite remarkable. I I, I can't do that. I I don't know. I you ask my wife. She just she, I, I I'm a terrible liar. The uh, um, but let, let me ask this, and this this might it's a little bit of a challenging question. It's something that, that um, your book made me think about, and I don't really have an answer. Um, here's just an example. So the Bush administration, that is the um, Bush two administration says we're going to go to war against uh, Saddam Hussein uh, in order to um, a liberate the Iraqi people, b spread democracy in the Middle East, and c uh, uh, make America itself safe by destroying putative weapons of mass destruction. Those are the three reasons we're going, um, and that's vaguely propagandistic, I suppose. Uh, how would uh, how would an administration like the Bush administration or any administration um, send such a message in such a way that we wouldn't call it propaganda? Well, I'm, I've, I start with the idea that propaganda is a neutral term, really, and that propaganda is 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 controversial, certainly, and but it's also essential during wartime. It's not possible for any um, administration to fully explain the complexities of of war and its own policy and it may not really it, it may not benefit the United States that it do so so I do think it's always necessary for any wartime administration to simplify and and turn this complex policy into persuasive messages when it's time to go to war. Mm-hmm. Now, it, and that's why I want to say that propaganda can be factual. Mm-hmm. It can be just a simplified version of what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. The Bush administration, though, did not choose that that kind of propaganda to use. I mean, they chose what they felt would be most persuasive mm-hmm. and chose the intelligence to back up what they thought would best sell their case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they did not have to do it that way necessarily if they felt that this war was justified, mm-hmm. but that's the way they chose to do mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I see. So then, in your conception, propaganda is an inevitable part of statecraft. You cannot do without it if you want to run a successful state. And some propaganda can be uh, truthful, and some uh, would not be truthful. Right. And yeah. I think that. Okay. Right. Right. And I, and I, you know, I think because during war, I mean, everybody accepts that during war, there also has to be some censorship. You know, you have to protect military operations you, mm-hmm. you know you there are some things that you just cannot know mm-hmm. and so that's also a part of the overall 
narrative or overall package, too, that most people accept. What they don't accept is being deliberately lied to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. you know, I think people are much more accepting of, of not being told something because it would harm operations or because it would upset a delicate relationship with an essential ally, for example, mm-hmm. but they don't want to be lied to. I either. see. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly understand that. That's a good point. But let me ask you this. I had an interesting discussion with my wife about, uh, I, I made the proposition, the rather controversial proposition, just to see what she said, that there couldn't be propaganda in an American context because the, uh, the media isn't controlled by the government. I, I studied the I studied Russia and the Soviet Union pretty much my whole life, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. there I can tell you that there definitely was propaganda because, the, at least in the case of the Soviet Union, the party controlled the entire uh, media apparatus, and uh, there really was no information not, or, or practically no information coming from any, anywhere else, at least not the kind of dissemination that is disseminated broadly. Certainly people talked in their kitchens and, and snuck Time magazine into the bathroom to read it, but uh, generally speaking, what the government said is what people understood and knew. And in that context, I told my wife that the propaganda can be very effective. But in a liberal democratic context like America, where everybody can basically get up and say, as we just have, that the Bush administration, uh, let's put it mildly, prevaricated in attempting to justify the war, that that really isn't exactly propaganda. That's more the marketplace of ideas. How, how would you respond to that? Well, I think that that there are different there are different propaganda models, right? There's a sort of totalitarian model where the government controls the press and also has the ability to imprison anybody who's dissents. I mean, that's you're certainly controlling um, information in that kind of a system. The reason, and and that's also very interesting to look at. And I'm sure you you know that you've done that a lot. Not really. The reason oh well, <laughs> the reason I'm interested in propaganda and democracies is because it has to have that persuasive element to it. You, yeah. and that is why the you know American model is much more clo- more closely aligned to public relations and mm-hmm. marketing and the kind of persuasion that we're used to, mm-hmm. so that. And it will rely more on information because it wants to be credible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has, it has to persuade the media to pick it up and deliver those messages. So a lot, a lot of what I talk about in the book is this method of news management mm-hmm. that administrations use during wartime mm-hmm. to kind of guide and shape how the news media will cover a war. Mm-hmm. And because their number one source is going to be the government and, the, and including the military, the you know officials do have that ability to sort of set the framework for how we're going to understand this. That doesn't mean it's not going to be challenged. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I saw in the documents was the you know the officials sort of adjusting and adapting to what was coming through in the media or what war correspondents were reporting or what soldiers themselves were saying about the war or what peace groups were saying about the war to try to um, maintain their sort of dominance over the message. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of give and take that goes on. It doesn't. It, the propaganda message does not just come down from on high and go directly to the people. There's going to be a lot of maneuvering and adjusting that happens. Mm-hmm. 
in this kind of system. Yeah, that, that's a that's a very nuanced and, and I think intelligent way to put it. And I I would set it against what is sometimes said about. Um, we'll call it propaganda, American government propaganda. Uh, for instance, by Noam Chomsky, I don't know if you've read this book, Manufacturing Consent. Yes. The, the, I guess to tell you is that uh, if, in fact, they're trying to manufacture uh, consent, they, they are failing abysmally. Um, that's, that's the only thing I came away from that book. But I, I do quite agree with you that it is, it is a difficult thing in a context where people can talk back. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, and it does have to rely on it's, – it's rhetorically much more – uh, sophisticated than Soviet propaganda was very ham-handed. Uh, American propaganda is much subtler, I think much more intelligent. Um, when governments try to get the message out, it's much more intelligent. So uh, can we say then that when, uh, you know, the, um, I don't know, Americans for Peace in Iraq speak back to the government, that their messages are also propaganda? Yeah, not a, yes, yes. I mean, they're also trying to be persuasive, mm-hmm. right, and mm-hmm. to um, put out their um, their narrative about mm-hmm. the war, mm-hmm. and and you know that can be uh, it can be effective. I I do I do find overall though that the government has many more resources mm-hmm. and more influence mm-hmm. in getting out its message often than citizen groups or other groups. Those those do count and they do have some influence. And I have noticed that the officials making propaganda, those records that I can see, I mean, I certainly haven't been able to see the Bush administration Mm -hmm. materials on this, is that they do pay a lot of attention to dissenters and critics. I mean, Mm -hmm. they are very attentive to Mm -hmm. challenges to their their messages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I know in the Soviet case they would uh, basically send the – the NKVD or the KGB out into the countryside to, to find out what people were talking about and then um, try to uh, try to get them to say something out of school and that would, that could often uh, um, uh, that, that can often come, c- cause them a certain amount of harm. So let's uh, talk about the specific instances in the book and uh, there are uh, seven of them actually. Let's talk about the, six, yeah, there are six of them and uh, let, let's begin with the one that I bet is least known among our listeners and. Certainly by me, and that is the uh, the war against Spain, and then the war in the Philippines. How did uh, I guess it's the McKinley administration try to mm-hmm. sell this conflict to Americans? Well, the um, the war with Spain, which uh, just lasted about four months in 1898, it was it's always been better known to Americans than the war with the Philippines, which dragged on for years and. Um, Historians have uh, done some great stuff on the U.S. and the Philippines, but you're right. It's not known. Um, it's not a it's not a well-known war throughout the population. I think that um, you know a lot of students in school do not hear about it because it it uh, turned out to be a pretty ugly, unpleasant kind of war that kind of just kind of vanished from school textbooks for a long time. So the war with Spain was celebrated and then that was, you know, the Philippines kind of faded off. And I wanted to talk about the Philippines because it's really the first time that the U.S. government has to justify this ongoing war overseas, you know, that um, – and it's also um, the first time there's really – 
a mass communications developing that the mm -hmm. McKinley administration can use to get out its um, its version of, of what the war is about. So the um, uh, United States was initially seen as liberating the Philippines from Spain as it was liberating Cuba. But um, the United States planned on keeping the Philippines, or at least keeping Manila, as a um, strategically valuable base for um, uh, links to China and trade and, mm -hmm. and markets in, in Asia. And this, of course, is at a time when all the great powers are expanding their empire. Mm -hmm. So the United States is sort of joining an ongoing movement here and getting a sort of a foothold in the Pacific by mm -hmm. taking over the Philippines. Well, the Filipinos resisted. They um, wanted independence. And so the uh, McKinley administration called this an um, insurgency and um, sent troops to put it down. But the Filipinos resisted for a number of years, and it turned out to be a much longer um, a bloodier war than the war with Spain had been. Mm -hmm. So I guess my so question the, is, what, why did the why did the McKinley administration have to sell it at all? I mean, uh, it's not my impression. I'm, I'm fundamental, fundamentally a European historian. It's, it's not my impression that, uh, with with certain exceptions, that the, the British had to sell um, taking large swaths of Africa and Southern Asia, or the Germans had to sell taking Southwest Africa, or the French mm -hmm. had to sell taking Algeria and Morocco to their populations. It was just understood that this is what great powers did. I, I could be wrong about that, and I'm sure some French historian is going to call me and say, you're <laughs> well, full of had, it, Marshall. No, yeah. they, had, they had established you know, themselves as an empire, as a, you know, and there they would say they were a force for civilization and all mm -hmm. this. Well, you know, the United States had this whole tradition of being anti-empire mm -hmm. and anti-imperialistic. Mm -hmm. so, that, that is, unless we were building it in the western part of the United States. Yes, well, we yeah. didn't call that. Yeah, we, we didn't call it that. Manifest Destiny. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, right. No, I see, I just had to get that out there. The, um, so, so, why, so, so the American populace itself, American sediment was not four square, four taking large foreign territories like the Philippines. And so that's why there, it needed to be sold. Right, right. There was a controversy about this. And there were Americans who felt that this was a violation of U.S. tradition, mm -hmm. that um, this went against our principles, mm -hmm. that the Philippines would uh, rival our port cities on the Pacific, you know, that it would um, take away from... Uh, the development of those ports, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that uh, it was going to be hard to defend, which turned out to be true, but, you know. Um, but what McKinley did was he talked about how the United States was going to bring Christian civilization to the Philippines, mm -hmm. that we were going to uh, help civilize these people and educate them and bring them technology and, and progress, and that 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 we really were going to be liberating them from their sort of savage state. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. so, did people buy this? Well, a lot of people knew nothing about the Philippines, knew nothing. So mm -hmm. they did not know that the Philippines had a university older than Harvard. You know, they did not know. And what they saw about the Philippines 
tended to reinforce this idea that, you know, it was a bunch of tribes, very much like Native Americans, who were, you know, standing in the way of progress, really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and needed um, needed a, a help from um, the Americans. And this is what, you know, Kipling called the white man's burden, mm-hmm. that you know, certainly appealed to the sort of racial attitudes of the time about um, the superiority of of white people and their obligation, their duty to try to lift up uh, and civilize the heathen, you know, that that sort of thing. So McKinley also appealed to that widespread belief of the time that this was a sort of do-good operation Mm -hmm. with Filipinos. Mm-hmm. Oh, did any Filipinos believe this to be true? I mean, were there? Did America have allies in the Philippines that were parading um, across the stage saying, "Yes, yes, come help us"? Um, I'm reminded. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm, no. <laughs> I was just reminded of the the flag of the state of Massachusetts. It's its seal. Most people don't know this, but it says something in Latin on the flag of Massachusetts. And if I'm not incorrect, it says, "Come help us." Well, that's certainly what the McKinley administration said that the United States was doing, was helping, was Uh coming to help the Filipinos who were misguided and really unfit to rule themselves. Mm -hmm. So the Filipinos had very quickly organized a government. It... um, and, you know, declared themselves to be the first Republic of Asia and really thought they were going to be helping the Americans liberating themselves from Spain. When they realized the Americans were really replacing Spain, um, relations between the Filipinos and the Americans grew quite tense and then led to shots being fired and then mm-hmm. actual war. What the... Um, what the McKinley administration did is it announced it was carrying out a policy it called benevolent assimilation and that it sent out a civilian commission along with military troops to um, set up a kind of civil government in the Philippines. And the goal of this government, which was, which was ultimately headed by um, William Howard Taft, was to kind of co-opt the Filipino elite who were some of the leaders of the resistance and show them that by working with the United States, they would be able to protect their land holdings and that they would benefit and prosper. Mm -hmm. So, yes, ultimately there are some Filipinos who do cooperate with the United States. Mm-hmm. So did McKinley and his administration, did they believe their own propaganda? Did they actually believe I, I, that they were going to civilize the Filipinos and bring um, peace, prosperity, and democracy to them, or was this just a pretext? Well, I think that that's one of the interesting things that I that I look at in, in the book, is that very often, uh, you know, government propagandists do believe what they are saying. Um, they don't often know very much about the other countries that the United States is fighting. So they're able to kind of create or construct the sort of identity of these other people to fit their narrative. Mm -hmm. So I think the McKinley administration knows very little about the Philippines. And um, so I think they do believe um, that 
they certainly believe that the, the United States is um, going to be as benevolent as it can be. And what happens, though, to challenge this is that as the Filipino resistance goes on and on and on, the methods that the U.S. military uses become very severe, and they start to um, uh, use a lot of, of burnings of people's villages. They use they use torture. Mm-hmm. They use um, a, a violence against civilians, and they, you know, they they start to act in ways that are not at all in line with this idea that we're that Americans are bringing civilization to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And this prompts a sort of anti-war movement to grow in the United States. Mm-hmm. It had already existed. There had been people from the beginning who declared themselves anti-imperialist, mm-hmm. and they opposed the U.S. takeover of the Philippines. But the reports coming back from the Philippines about Americans carrying out atrocities do add to the kind of um, opposition to this war. Mm-hmm. And how does the McKinley administration respond to the the, the counter-propaganda, so to say, that is the, uh, the reports of atrocities and Filipino resistance? Well, they say, you know, probably one of their most articulate defenders is Henry Cabot Lodge, the senator from Massachusetts. And he basically says that these things are necessary because you're fighting Asians. Mm-hmm. And he says Asians don't have, don't value human life. And so, therefore, Americans have been forced to, you know, go against their own nature and adopt these kinds of tactics in mm-hmm. order to bring this, these Asians under control for their own good, mm-hmm. is how he puts it. And that pretty much, I think, sums up the response to mm-hmm. the, uh, the challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty, my understanding is that that sort of argument was common coin uh, in the, in, at the time. Yeah. To say something like that. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, I find this very interesting, and I could probably talk about the Philippines, about about which I know virtually nothing, um, for the rest of the hour. But let's move on, <laughs> in the interest of historical progress, to something I know quite a bit more about, and that is uh, World War One. How did Wilson sell World War One to the very skeptical Americans? Well, <clears throat> now Wilson is most famous for saying that we're going to war in 1917 to make the world safe for democracy. And probably the and, great, greatest line ever in, in American well, propaganda. It, That's a really it, good one. It is a it's a classic, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And we kind of go back to it over and over uh-huh. again. Yeah, I think the only um, the only I was going to say the only thing that comes to mind that might be a little bit better is the motto of the Strategic Air Command, which is "Peace is our profession." I like that very much. I think that's genius. Anyway, go go ahead about Wilson. (laughs) Well, what Wilson has to do, because the United States was neutral from 1914 to 1917, he has to mobilize the the nation and, you know, get um, a couple million troops to France and... He sets up the Committee on Public Information, which is um, America's first, uh, you know, federal propaganda agency, and it's meant to be temporary, of course, just for uh, just for the war. But the Committee on Public Information uses, you know, the latest techniques 
and draws upon artists and advertisers and public relations specialists and historians and um, novelists to sort of come up with every possible way to reach the American public with messages about why the United States has to go to war and how it should mobilize and why people should enlist and conserve and all the things that go with, with total war. So um, they've got movies in the movie theaters. They've got posters plastered everywhere. They've got the four Minutemen speakers who speak at at movie theaters when the reel is being changed, and they speak at picnics and at civic organizations and at parades. Um, somebody in Maine said that if a dog fight occurred, a four-minute man would show up to give a speech <laughs> to the crowd that gathered. You know, the, so they're trying in every possible way to to get those messages out there. And even though Wilson's war aims are um, about uh, spreading democracy and free enterprise or capitalism, you know, he's a big believer in free trade as being a, uh, the, the best way to have a peaceful international economy. Um, the Committee on Public Information really feels that the pressure uh, to mobilize people quickly and the educational efforts take time. I mean, that to explain everything that's happened, you know, why we're at war with Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that all would take a lot of time. So instead they go for these very sensational images in that that people see over and over again. And, and what they do is they really um, promote this image of Germans or the Huns, as they're called, as as monsters, mm -hmm. as rapists, as baby killers, as uh, bloodthirsty um, ape-like creatures who've got to be stopped by force. Mm -hmm. And so you have in World War One this uh, this range of messages. You have the president on the one hand talking about creating a world order based on democracy and capitalism and, and peaceful moderation and um, reform through evolution, not revolution. And on the other hand, you have Americans being bombarded with these um, sensational images that are really atrocity propaganda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a... Um, but the, and they do work. They stir up a lot of hatred of Germans, mm -hmm. which ends up having the unintended consequence of um, attacks uh, against German Americans mm -hmm. throughout the country. So that is something certainly the the government officials never planned to happen, mm -hmm. but they certainly succeeded in stirring up this hatred of all things German that mm -hmm. then ended up. Uh, having this backlash against German Americans during yeah. World War One. That's something I never really understood, and uh, maybe you can help me understand it. Uh, the I, I've I've looked at the propaganda um, about the Hun, and of course I know that the Americans uh, sided with the um, Allies in World War One, but I've not been able to square the fact that a, a very large portion of the American electorate was of German descent or just German. 
um, mm-hmm. especially in, in this part of the country where I now sit, uh, where you can still go to German restaurants. And I, I lived actually in Michigan for a while, lots of Germans there. I grew up in Kansas, lots of Germans there. There used to be a thing called the German vote in American history, mm-hmm. I know. And mm-hmm. so uh, d- d- when being told that the Germans were monsters, didn't the Germans stand up and say, well, just, yeah, this is just faults on its face? Because look at us, we're not monsters. Well, you know, a lot of the, the a lot of German Americans were in a, in a sort of tough position. There were, for example, in Milwaukee, there were a whole bunch of German American socialists who opposed going to war. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much because they loved Germany, because many of them had left Germany because they did not love it, you know, but because of their um, political ideology. And there were other many Americans who actually had cousins or relatives fighting for Germany. And initially, that's one of the reasons why Wilson said the United States must be neutral. We're, you know, we have so many immigrants in the United States in the 19-teens that have family ties to both sides of this fight. Mm-hmm. You know, Americans must stay out of it. And I think part of the reason why the war propaganda is so sensational is to kind of overcome mm-hmm. that reluctance that that uh, many Americans had to to get involved in a war like this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, of the cases you provide, the, the, the most this was the most eye-opening for me because I think it's the only, it's the first time in which I saw that the Wilson administration was basically engaged in lying to the American public about uh, about the, particularly about the Germans, because I mean the fact of the matter is is that if we're, uh, and, and I can't imagine somebody didn't point this out, but but I, I just don't know that that um, if we're making the world safe for democracy, the Germans had uh, if not a thriving democracy, uh, one that was well on its way to be thriving. Um, it's not as if they were any less mm-hmm. democratic than uh, certain French administrations over the previous hundred years. Um, a, a major portion of the uh, the Reichstag, a major portion of the German Parliament um, were socialists, and they voted. They wanted well. They were planning on voting against war appropriations, and they were against going to war. So it couldn't really be said in truth that Germany itself wasn't at least quasi-democratic, much more democratic than Russia, our ally. And then the right. war, you know, the war propaganda about the uh, you know the atrocities that that was. I don't know how much of it is true, but it certainly seems like a lot of it was just cooked up. Yes, yes. Well, you know, there were people who did speak out and say exactly what you just said, and one of them was uh, Robert LaFollette from Wisconsin, who said, you know, the Germans have, a, you know, a democratic form of government. They mm-hmm. have Social Security. We, you know, they yeah. have things that that we don't have. Um, and there were actually historians on the Committee on Public Information who in their materials did talk about Germany as a country with a parliament and a, a tradition like this. Mm-hmm. But those don't turn into posters very easily, yeah. you know, especially persuasive, um, you know, sort of over-the-top posters. And that's what more and more people saw in the movies and in posters. So the more popular versions of the propaganda ignored this this issue. Uh, and the is... other thing, oh, I just want to say the other thing yeah. about World War One that made it hard for people to speak up is the very strong censorship that happened during mm-hmm. World War One. So with uh, the government made it illegal to say anything um, negative against 
the flag or the military uniform or the government's policies or the allies. And so people were actually arrested and imprisoned for mm-hmm. speaking out these kinds of criticisms. So, for example, um, uh, one farmer was was imprisoned for a year because he said the Germans weren't doing anything different in Belgium than the Americans had done in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the freedoms of speech were re- severely restricted during World War One, and that kind of of uh, criticism was was extremely limited, and a lot of people learned just not to say anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Well, now I'm very confused because I, I guess I don't really even understand what, why, and this goes far beyond the scope of your book, but as an American historian, maybe you can explain it to me. Why in the heck did we uh, side with the uh, French and the British and the Russians? <laughs> what, why did Wilson <laughs> want to go over there and do that? Uh, you know, I think that historians have really grappled with that over and over again. It's not an easy question to answer. I mean, the initial, you know, the immediate issue is the uh, submarine warfare issue interfering with American trade. Americans, mm-hmm. as a neutral nation, were shipping supplies yeah. to both sides during World War I, um, but increasingly to the uh, Entente or Allied powers, especially to the British. Mm-hmm who were buying a lot of American goods and borrowing a lot of American money. And so were the Russians and so were the French. Mm-hmm. And um, the Germans were using submarines, which was a new, fairly new weapon mm-hmm. in World War I, to stop those shipments from getting to, to the Allies. Mm-hmm. So Wilson was under pressure to stand up for American American rights mm-hmm. and American rights to trade and ship across the Atlantic as a neutral nation. Mm-hmm. Um, he did try for a number of years to negotiate with Germany and with the British about their treatment of American shipping. And um, so he, it was certainly, he had shown that it was possible to negotiate some kind of, of, um, uh, arrangement with the Germans, but the Germans ultimately decided that American products were um, giving the Allies too much help, and they also thought that if they uh, could stop, prevent some of those supplies from getting to the British, they could win the war before the Americans would come in Mm -hmm. and really stop them. But I also think when you look at Wilson, you see that he, he comes to decide that the only way to really set up a proper peace after the war is over is if the Americans get into the war in the first place. Mm-hmm. So he also wants to have the Americans be present at the peace negotiations where he thinks that the Americans will really be able to dominate and uh, lay the foundation of this new world order that he wants to create. Mm-hmm. So I know that's you yeah, know, it's no, that's, much more complicated than no, that. No, it's very, but. it's very interesting, and I, you know, uh, the more and more I know about Wilson, the more and more complex he becomes. He is, he's yes. hardly one-sided. I mean, when I was going to school, I remember he was kind of, you know, he was a model, but the, he was a very, I mean. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to say about Wilson. Let's just put it that way. So anyway, let's go on to an easier case for the government, and that is World War II. It would seem like a dead simple thing to say we're going to fight, you know. Darth Vader in the uh, evil empire here, and uh, so it shouldn't be any problem. Let's go. 
Well, you know, in part, one one thing that, that I'm able to show by looking at one war after another is how much the previous war affects the next one. And certainly, I think the, the point I want to start with, because looking back, you're absolutely right, this seems simple. Um, World War II seems simple. But I think that it's really important to look at how World War I made Americans quite disillusioned about intervention in, in other people's wars and how also they were very uh, dubious of any kind of official propaganda. I mean, Americans do learn after World War I that what they were told was not true, about the atrocities or that it was severely exaggerated, you know, that they feel quite disillusioned and distrustful. So as World War II breaks out in uh, in Europe in 1939, most Americans, the overwhelming majority of Americans, do not want to get involved in any way in this war because they're really thinking that we learned a lesson in World War One. we're not we're not getting involved in another European war. So it is, you know, it is quite difficult for the Roosevelt administration to try to build up support in a way that doesn't look like propaganda to get Americans to at least support aiding the Allies mm-hmm. with land lease and other, you know, with American um, weapons and equipment and, and food supplies before the, Jap- the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So it's important to look at that, those, because those months, uh, those two, those years, 1939 to 1941, are crucial, and the Americans are, oh, you know, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly opposed to intervention, and Roosevelt knows this mm-hmm. and feels that he can't, he can't trick them into war because mm-hmm. he also believes that the United States must commit itself to international leadership once this war is over, mm-hmm. not like it did after World War One, when the United States rejected joining the League of Nations, this international organization that Wilson thought would be able to keep the peace. So Roosevelt's also looking ahead. You know, he's got this kind of short-term problem of getting Americans to support intervention or su- support aiding the Allies in Europe. And he also has this long-term vision that he thinks is essential, that you can't, you've got to build a trust among Americans, a trust or consensus for American internationalism. Mm-hmm. So it's re- he's really got a kind of two-track message he wants to deliver. Mm-hmm. So even though you think it, it, it's much more complicated in a way than we're just going to kill Nazis and, and Japs here in mm-hmm. World War II. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the propaganda itself, I mean, if you look at the posters and things, which some of which are, are really quite incredible, uh, incredible in the sense that especially the Japanese ones are remarkably racist, yeah. uh, that, that, they, that there's no complexity to the message at all, at least not as I see it in those posters. It really yeah. is kill a Jap uh, yeah. today and make America great. Uh, so, I mean, they really do say things like that. I mean, I show them to my students. They're astounding. People can they look at these caricatures of Asian people and, you know, buck teeth and glasses and, you know, the Tojo image. And, and it says in big letters, you know, kill a Jap for Christ or something like that. And it really mm-hmm. just that's what it says. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do, we right. get, how do we get from this very complex message to this really quite simple visceral message? 
Well, you really have two things going on at once, which is you've got to defeat these these uh, evil people, um, and that we also have to what we really have to try to work with our allies. So you also have propaganda about the British and the Russians that and the Chinese that is also very simplistic about suggesting that they have the same vision for the post-war world that the United States does mm-hmm. and that they will continue to work with the Americans once this war is over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, that, and that, that also is a, a, a that, that is, well, at least in the case of the Russians, that, that is either remarkably naive or a lie. Uh, it's, it's, it couldn't have been anything else. I think it's uh, on Roosevelt's yeah. part, it seems to be a hope that it can happen, recognizing there will have to be some compromise. But Roosevelt is also very confident about uh, American economic and military power. Mm-hmm. So he thinks that the United States as it comes out of World War II, is going to be the dominant world power. So it will be cooperating with allies, but it will also be the dominant. It will be the leader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he, is, he wants American support for these kinds of international commitments that the U.S. will be making once the war is over mm-hmm. to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one question that occurred to me is that we seem to have manufactured uh, atrocity propaganda in World War One to use against the Germans, and then in World War Two, the Germans were actually uh, committing uh, atrocities on uh, every corner, and we we don't use it very much because I know that at least in the brief survey that I did, the the German propaganda is, um, you know, it's it's mild in that way. Did, did we use any of the atrocities committed by the Nazis um, as propaganda? We- well, partly again because of the legacy of World War One, the people who are doing American wartime propaganda at, um, for example, the Office of War Information, which is the successor to the, the Committee on Public Information in World War One, they know that Americans do not trust atrocity propaganda. I see. They don't believe it, so they don't think it will be very useful. Interesting. Um, what they do decide is to um, eventually use some atrocity propaganda. And again, these tend to be actual events. So they decide they will use they will use news reports of atrocities the Japanese commit against American POWs, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do eventually release that. Um, but that's only after there's a lot of study about what the results of this might be. Mm-hmm. As far as the the Germans and the the final solution goes, they really play that down. They first of all they do a lot of studies of American opinion during World War II, and this is when they have public opinion polls. But they're they're endlessly surveying American opinion. Mm-hmm. And because that's the best, then you know best how to manipulate it, you know, if you know what it is. Mm -hmm. And they know that there is a lot of anti-Semitism in American culture. Mm -hmm. So they do not want to suggest that this war is about rescuing Jews. Mm -hmm. So they do not talk about um, the final solution or the death camps, even when they know they Mm -hmm. actually exist. 
And they also don't, you know, they also don't think Americans will really believe it. Mm-hmm. You know, they they think that they'll just see this That's as another more fake atrocity propaganda. Yeah, I had never heard that before. That's a very interesting. That's a very interesting point. I, that's that's fascinating. I, but it makes perfect sense now that I think about it. Uh, yeah. So what are we? Um, uh, we're, we're, we I have to say we're running out of time, and uh, and and uh, and that upsets me because I want to talk more. Let's lump Korea and Vietnam into one um, sort of Cold War message. What? what how did? How did? Um, did these seem to be particularly tough cells in in light of? Uh, the way in which um, World War One and World War Two had gone, we won them both, but they were they're relatively bloody. And here we're going to go fight in small countries that uh, pretty much no one at the time had ever heard of. How, how is mm-hmm. that sold to Americans? Well, the, so with this, the, you know, the overwhelming um, message of the free world has to stop the spread of communism. And very much a kind of good guy versus bad guy division of the world. You know, very simple, very clear. And then that is that that idea that all communists are sort of controlled by Moscow helps to really simplify that mm-hmm. image. And then that's a, sort of applied on top of these very complicated situations in Korea and Vietnam, which have a lot to do with anti-colonial movements and, um, you know, sort of civil war situations. Mm-hmm. So the that sort of Cold War anti-communism message really helps to both spell those two wars, Korea and Vietnam, but it also really distorts what's actually happening there. So both of those wars you know, Korea turns out to be a kind of draw, and you know, Vietnam fails, and a lot of it has to do with the the gap between what's really happening on the ground in these two places and and the history and culture and and what these people are actually fighting about, mm-hmm. and the way that Americans see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are so, both. I was going to say these are both really interesting instances in the comparative perspective because here we have. I think in both of them that the government line uh, was challenged to the extent that it failed. That that people uh, people said um, no, this is, you, you're, you've sold us a, a, a false bill of goods here, and mm-hmm. we're not going to go on with this anymore. Um, and you know that that is, if you can pull anything out of uh, anything good out of the. Um, the Vietnam conflict. I think there was some good in the Korean conflict, as I know a lot of South Koreans. Uh, That's right. That would. <laughs> they're very grateful. That would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would. Um, that would be it. That we we actually managed to show that we we won't we won't uh, swallow it hook, line, and sinker. But nonetheless, there was massive support in the beginning. Uh, That's right. Years that of, it does of, take. Of, it does take quite a bit of time, and this is where I think you really see the advantage to the officials who are able to construct and get out their their framework early on mm-hmm. and everybody else has to sort of catch up to it mm-hmm. and begin to sort of look at you know what becomes in, known as the credibility gap in Vietnam yeah, it takes exactly. some time for that to develop because you know the the effort to um, sort of manipulate and direct the the you know the news media and um, people's initial desire to trust their leaders when mm-hmm. you're talking about a crisis 
and you've got troops going into battle. I mean, that's there's all many reasons why you want to sort of rally around the flag. And so it does take a while for that sort of questioning and doubt to turn into actual opposition. I, I think if you ask people in the administrations themselves, that is the Truman administration and then the Kennedy and Johnson administration, and then I would even say the Bush II administration, that one of the difficulties they faced is that they were thinking, to use a chess analogy, they were thinking two or three moves ahead in the game, uh, whereas the American people themselves don't readily see two or three moves ahead in the game. They want to know what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And what is going to happen next is you're going to be uh, required to sacrifice your son for a country and a cause you don't understand and really have never heard of. And this Mm -hmm. is a very tough sell. And if you say, well, you know, if we defend Korea or defend Vietnam or if we defeat Iraq, then 25 years after that, you know, in the case of Korea and Vietnam, communism will be destroyed, which turned out to be the case, uh, that then, uh, you know, you, you're, it's, it, it may be true, but it's a very hard thing to explain to people who are sending their sons off to die. I think similarly with the Iraq conflict, I think the Bush administration would say, well, you know, we were, we were, we were involved in the long game and Americans are involved in the short game. Um, so we needed, again, there was a kind of end, do the ends justify the means. We needed to get in there so that 25 or 30 years from now, the, 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 the cause of, of, of uh, Iraqi terrorism or some sort of terrorism or, or instability in the region would be dampened down. Um, I don't know whether you buy that line or not, but I think that's what they would say. And th- I think this is a necessary difficulty in just democratic politics is that, uh, that the populace kind of intelligently seems to be relatively short-sighted about these things. I think that's a good thing because it's a counterweight to these long-term goals that people in administrations have. But let's just, in our last few minutes, talk a little bit about um, Iraq. H- how, did, uh, how did the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, sell the Iraq war? I mean, we kind of remember this, but what is your take <laughs> on it? I don't know well, if we really I do think- remember, to be honest with you, but I, <laughs> go ahead. I think it's, um, I mean, it was very strange to me to be working on this book while this war was, was going on and, you know, being sort of packaged and, and sold. And to, to sort of watch it as both a citizen and a and a historian, I, I think that um, in many ways the the Bush administration was incredibly skilled at uh, packaging and and selling this war, and they used what they called iron message discipline. And this is, gets back to what we were talking about earlier, when you. Um, you really don't want a lot of dissent or criticism to challenge the the official narrative that you're presenting. Mm-hmm. So the official narrative was we must um, uh, stop Saddam Hussein from collaborating with al-Qaeda. We must um, get control of these weapons of mass destruction that could be launched against us and that, you know, we have this longer goal of spreading democracy in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And when you have, um, you know, officials from the administration and you also have this, this network of, of bloggers and think tank experts and um, political allies in Congress that are all getting the kind of same talking points every morning. 
and they're out there on television 24-7 delivering the, you know, the message of the day. Um, what I saw that they were very effective at is controlling this. And so by the time somebody would challenge the message of the day, say some historian or some, you know, some political critic would say, well, that example, that analogy really doesn't work here, you know, for example, um, they would be on to their next one. I mean, they really, it's, they, um, Scott McClellan, who was Bush's um, press secretary after Ari Fleischer, talked about, you know, this idea of a winning the news cycle, you know, mm -hmm. dominating the news cycle. And they were very good at this. And so I think that it made it quite difficult to, to challenge it. And the people who opposed um, also were accused of being unpatriotic or even traitors. So there was also an enormous pressure um, to, to silence or really marginalize dissent or mm -hmm. ridicule people who, um, who raised questions or, or challenged. Mm -hmm. So I think that they were quite skillful at, at getting their message out and really dominating that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have a little bit different take on it because, uh, I, and I, I was going to say because, I'm not sure why, but I was in Washington during those years in the run-up to the war and when the war started, and I was actually working for a political magazine not far from the Capitol. And one of the things that uh, I've, uh, that I noticed at the time that I think, it, I, I think it's been forgotten is that um, literally every time the Bush administration made any claim, for example, about weapons of mass destruction in, uh, in Iraq, there was a huge chorus of voices that said, no, that's just false. Uh, we covered it all. Uh, you know, and the, the, the person that comes to mind is this fellow, Scott Ritter, who basically shouted mm -hmm. on every right. corner that this mm -hmm. was just false. And that he was that's there right. and he was, a, uh, he, was, he was a weapons inspector. And you know, it's true that he was discredited, but he was discredited, exactly. he was discredited by, some discredit, by some people who had already been discredited, that being the New York Times. Um, so, okay, right. It, it, right. So, and so, that's, I, I think he's a good example of how you discredit your opposition in some way. Yeah. You know, so that, that then the story becomes about the discrediting, yeah. not the actual point they're trying to make. Yeah. No, I... I see. I see what you mean, and it's funny because a friend of mine was working on Scott Ritter, and and he wanted to write an article called "Scott Ritter Was Right." But you're right; the news cycle had moved on, and nobody was interested. That's right. <laughs> Scott Ritter That's was right. right, though. That's right. <laughs> and he's portrayed as a lunatic now. But I mean, I think uh -huh. the thing the thing that's interesting to me is that you know, if you were actually there, and I, I was there, uh, there there were lots of people within the administration itself, not not in the administration, but in the government, particularly in the State Department. People that I knew in the State Department and also official mm -hmm. State Department reports said that some of this intelligence was very questionable. That's um, right. And and they said it in print and in public, and it was reported by people <laughs> like my magazine. Um, that's right. The, and people resigned. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. And resigned, and they said, you know, this is right. Yeah, this is. And then they were. And that was the story. They resigned. Yeah, they Not resigned. exactly about yeah. what they were yeah. saying. But and then end, you also have the State Department itself being marginalized, yeah. right? No, I had friends. So there. you I have Donald Rumsfeld really dominating the, you know, the being the source for the administration. Yeah, yeah. And no, Colin I, I, Powell. Yeah, I think I think really the tip, the tipping point that you just mentioned, Colin Powell. The tipping point, if there, if it was a tipping point, the thing that really. You know, and I supported the war. I, I thought it was a good idea. But the thing that really tipped the balance for me was uh, was Colin Powell. I, mm -hmm. I thought that he was basically above being a flack. 
I, I was totally naive about that. But I, and I admit it. I, you know, I say, you know, that's why I'm not in government because I have bad judgment. But, you know, wow. but, he, he, but he, I just thought, well, it's that guy. You know, that guy. He's a true blue, red-blooded American hero, and he would never get up and lie to us. And uh, or no, lies too strong. He would never get up and and, and prevaricate in such a way as to lead us. Um, down the primrose path, but in fact, that's what, what happened. But I, yeah, again, the, the thing, the thing that's interesting is the way that I, I don't know. When we start to talk about, I, I, I think it's important to talk about both propaganda and counter propaganda because in the American context, and particularly in this instance, there was a lot of counter propaganda. And and I, I, I do wonder if the question it might not be, especially about Iraq, might not be better put in this way. I mean, did it really matter what the administration said? They were just dead set. Uh, they were, I don't know if they were dead set, but they, they were going to do this thing, and they had the congressional support they needed to do it. So it really didn't matter what they said. I mean, it, it was all sort of window dressing. We were going to go to war in Iraq. And mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. Mm-hmm. I, I, could, I could be totally incorrect. But I don't know. I mean, because I, I just I heard lots of people, and, and you know, I'm a reasonably conservative fellow, and I hang out with reasonably conservative people, and a lot of liberal people. My wife's practically a communist. Um, but the, but and, and even the conservative people I knew were like, uh, I remember a friend of mine who's actually a columnist for the, the conservative columnist for the New York Times now. He said to me uh, in the office, uh, what happens if they don't find the weapons of mass destruction? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he's a really conservative guy. Uh, and, and, and he's a highly placed individual now. So it wasn't as if people weren't really wondering about this thing at the time. It, I, it, so, again, this is one of these instances in which if consent was being manufactured, the manufacturers were completely incompetent because there were, I didn't see any consent to do this thing, um, really. Mm-hmm. But no, I could be wrong. Anyway, we've uh, taken up a huge amount of your time, Susan, and I want to thank you very much. I could... This is another one of these books that I could talk about for another hour, but um, I imagine you're getting tired uh, of listening to me. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. The book is Why American Fights, Patriotism and Patriotism and War Propaganda from the Philippines to Iraq. And we've been talking to Susan Bruder. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Susan Brewer about her new book, Why America Fights, Patriotism and War Propaganda from the Philippines to Iraq. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week. Thank you.